Good morning. My name is Merle Flinner. I serve as an elder here at FBC. And today we're reading uh, from the scriptures in Luke 14, 7 through 11. Jesus speaking. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Have a seat. Thank you, Merle. Good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, if you want to turn in your copy of Scripture to that passage. We're going to work our way through there. Let's begin and, uh, with a word of prayer and ask God to give us help this morning. God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We pray as we spend a little bit of time in your word that you might encourage our hearts to know you more, to trust you more, to love you more and to find our hope and forgiveness in Christ alone. We thank you for this body of believers. We also thank you, God, for the body of believers in Ashland, Ashland First Baptist, and the work you've done through them for many, many years. Especially this morning, we pray for Adam as he's bringing the word to that church this morning. Give him the grace of seeing fruit in the ministry of his preaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, you can see in your worship folder on your notes, the title of the message is How Religion Gets in the Way of Jesus. How Religion Gets in the Way of Jesus. Kind of important to think about because when we think of, of things that get in the way of knowing God, maybe if you think about the world around us, you might think, what are some things that get in the way of me having a vital relationship with God? You might think uh, a couple of things. I'll give you some ideas if you hadn't thought of this yet. A temptation gets in, in the way of knowing God. Maybe there's uh, many of us say, well, I'd like to know God really well, but you know, temptation is tempting. Sin wouldn't be such a problem if it wasn't so much fun. And so temptation becomes something that gets in the way of our relationship uh, with God. We might think about the world around us and think there are obstacles in our culture and the world around us that get in the way of knowing God. There's a way that uh, we entertain ourselves. We say, well, the, the the options of entertainment nowadays can get, become an obstacle in me uh, knowing the Lord. Maybe you think politics in the world today gets in the way of knowing God, that there are now becoming obstacles in the, how our society is structured in uh, worship of the Lord. Maybe you might presume that education is getting in the way of knowing God and, and how others might uh, know God. Jesus here in this passage is going to really lower the boom on just one thing that is getting in the way of people knowing God, and it's religion. Now, I need to clarify, just so we're on the same page, what I mean by religion. I'm just going to use the term religion. I understand religion isn't a bad word. In fact, the book of James says, true religion is this, caring for orphans and widows. So we understand this. What I'm talking about here is religion as a system to earn God's favor. 
We might call it religious obligation. Religion that's merit-based. Do good to get good from God. And this is the kind of religion we're talking about here today. Religion gets in the way of Jesus for many, many reasons, and we want to see exactly how. First, let's look at verses 1 through 14, a couple of parables that Jesus tells as well as a healing. How can religion, religion get in the way of Jesus? Number one, religion can reduce our loving kindness. Religion can reduce your loving kindness. That seems counterintuitive, but I'm going to show you in a minute how it works. Religion, as a, a, a way to earn God's favor or to earn reputation in the eyes of others, will actually lower how much we care about others. In the Olympics in Tokyo, in one of the heats of the 800-meter run, which is 800 meters longer than I would like to sprint, <laughs> two runners tripped and fell, and knowing they were out of the race, they, they helped each other up. Two runners they sort of tripped over each other, not really sure who caused the other to trip, but they tripped over each other, and they're finding themselves laying on the track they helped one another to their feet. And it was, it was seen around the world as a great token of compassion because especially they sort of jogged to the finish line and, and one of the runners stopped to allow the other runner to finish first uh, so that he wouldn't be in last place. And, and so it was seen around the world as a great act of compassion. Really it was. That's why so many people watched the video on uh, social media. But here's the thing, and I don't want to ruin what you think of track and field. Compassion is a great way to lose races. <laughs> I mean, if you want to win races, you don't help people up. You, want, you run by them. You, you stay focused. I mean, if you're stopping and helping all your other competitors, you will lose 100 races out of 100. That every time you will lose. There is no race in the Olympics for who can be the nicest to the other competitors that I know of other than maybe that business where they do the little ribbon thing. That seems, that seems nice. I don't know where that came from. Welcome to my brain. Religion, as a way of understanding ranking in the eyes of God and others, has no room for compassion because it's about who's the highest, who's winning, who's best. There's no room for compassion in this kind of competition, merit-based religion assumes everyone should be trying to get better. Every, if, if we're in a system where everybody has got to be good, I have to assume you're trying to be good. You don't need my help. In fact, if you need my help, i got a problem because you're holding me back. Everyone should be trying to rank up. Everybody should be trying to measure up. And what Jesus is going to make clear is his kingdom isn't about rank at all. His kingdom isn't about measuring up at all. Three things Jesus' kingdom is about here in this first section, compassion, humility, and generosity. And religion will get in the way of all three of these things. Verses 1 through 6, let me read it. One Sabbath, that's the seventh day of the week, you're not supposed to work that day, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you realize he's been working with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, healing people, and they don't like Jesus. Healing people on the Sabbath, they consider it work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So there is this man who has some sort of swelling problem. I don't know, we don't know why this man with, who is apparently retaining water to a large degree swelled up. Probably there was some underlying infection or condition that was causing the swelling, which is normal with this kind of condition. And, and Jesus wanted to know from the religious leaders, does your religion allow me to heal this guy on the Sabbath? They wouldn't answer him. He already knew the answer because he's talked about it in the passage previous. They felt that healing was work. In fact, in the prior passage, he told them to come back the next day. Get your healing tomorrow. Because the Sabbath was so critically important to the religious leaders, to the people of Israel, because it was a, a part of how they understood God related to them. They were supposed to take a day off because God told them to. And their violation of the Sabbath in the past resulted in a lot of really terrible things happening in their nation. And so they took it very, very seriously, and they said, you couldn't do any work. And they had all kinds of rules built up around what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, these rules weren't in the Old Testament. The Old Testament just merely says, on the Sabbath, rest. And so here they are, decided you can't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus merely points out something that is fundamentally true about the people who were operating in the first century Israel, that if your son fell into a well on the Sabbath, you could get him out the well. And people would do this. Now, some of us might say, maybe you should have a grating over your well, some kind of safety features or something. I don't know. But, but this would be known. Nobody would argue this. How hard is it to get a kid out of a well? Well, it can be pretty hard. Well, what about an ox? What if you have an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day? And the answer is still, you would get your ox out of the Sabbath day because out on the Sabbath day, your ox is your livelihood. And everybody would have known this. Nobody would have even bothered to go ask their synagogue leader, can I get my ox out of the ditch? The synagogue leader would have said, what are you doing here? Get your ox out of the ditch before he injures himself. What has happened because of their religious notions of the Sabbath day they felt like they had to work really, really hard to make sure God knew they were resting. And as a result, they have no compassion on the people around him. Here's this man with this unusual swelling, this dropsy. He's uh, swollen up, and Jesus heals him. It's, it's one of the healings that I would have wanted to see, uh, along with the people getting healed of leprosy. It would have been really cool to see that happen, just kind of whoop, shrink up. All right, there you go. And he went away well. The Pharisees saw the Sabbath as more important, the strict adherence to their Sabbath rules as more important than providing somebody rest. That's, how, that's what their religious mindset had twisted their hearts about a man here who was, who was suffering. And Jesus is trying to point out their hypocrisy because they would gladly help an oxen, but not this poor individual who was suffering. And the reason is because the religious leaders are self-righteous, they expect everybody around them to also be self-righteous. 
They would expect this man wants to be self-righteous like them, which means this man wants to strictly adhere to the Sabbath guidelines. What they would have hoped for is that he would have turned to Jesus and say, Jesus, no, thank you for the healing. I want to obey the Sabbath. Jesus' response would have been, you're looking at the Sabbath. I'm your rest. But what the Pharisees have done, they don't want rest from God. They want rest that requires extraordinary effort because rest that requires effort is rest where you get to rank up. You get to show that you're better at being a Sabbath observer than the people around you. And their strict adherence to religious obligation made it so they would rather have a guy suffer than violate their religious law code. Jesus, though, is full of compassion. We need to understand this. Jesus sees the man with this condition, and his heart is broken. He is saddened. A number of reasons Jesus would be sad about the illness this man is suffering. Number one, his physical suffering. Having to endure his condition would have saddened Jesus. He would have also been saddened by the cause of his suffering. What caused his suffering? Sin in the world. Here's another indicator that the world is broken, that humans rebelled against God because there is a man with unusual swelling in their midst. That just confirms to Jesus again the cross is necessary. Why else is Jesus saddened? That this guy could sit in a room with religious people and nobody cares. That nobody cares. Not that they could do anything, but, but goodness, couldn't they have at least prayed for the guy? Couldn't they have at least sought the Lord's favor that he might experience a Sabbath rest like he's never experienced before? And Jesus, though, we see here what Jesus shows us, Jesus cares deeply. Religion had taken away the compassion of the religious leaders, and Jesus shows us what it's supposed to really be like. Okay, let's keep going. Verses 7 through 11. How, do, how can religion get in the way of Jesus? Religion reduces our loving kindness. It takes away our compassion. Secondly, takes away our humility. Merle read this passage. It's a parable that he told about somebody going to a wedding feast. You would show up at the wedding feast, and if the seats weren't labeled, you would sort of sit where you thought was appropriate for you to sit. And we do this nowadays. You show up at, uh, at uh, maybe grandma's house for Christmas. You're probably not going to sit at the kid's table unless you're a kid, and, or you're like me. Kid's table's fun. They have... They have dino nuggets, and those dinosaur nuggets are tasty. So you sit at a place, you're trying to figure out where you fit into the social stratosphere of the dinner you're at. You don't want to sit too low with the ne'er-do-wells. You don't want to sit too high, otherwise you might end up in the outside of your social influence. And Jesus picks up on this theme, this theme that is, is common. And he said, listen, here's the best thing. Find the lowest possible chair to sit at. And then if you were in the wrong place, when the, when the master of the banquet comes in, he's going to tell you, oh, no, you're sitting in the wrong spot. Come up here. Because if you were to sit at the, at the head table next to the host, and you're sitting there, and all of a sudden the host says, what are you doing here? And he kicks you down. And now, all, now the spot you would have been sitting in is full, and they kick you down all the way to the end of the kids' table, and you've got dino nuggets. It's humiliating. And Jesus is saying, 
The attitude you come into when you enter a room, the attitude of Jesus, the attitude of his kingdom is an attitude of humility. I am perfectly content at the lowest place here. However, the religious, when they walk into a room, they're trying to figure out where they rank. The religious people here, it's not about being in the room enjoying the banquet. It's about how do I fit in, and I need to make sure everybody below me understands they're below me. So the religious person looks at a room, if, if it's about religious merit, it's, if it's about a, who can get closest to God the fastest through religious obligation, I need to make sure I'm spending time with people who compete at my level. And people who don't measure up to me, they need to understand they don't measure up to me. This is what religion does. It's arrogance, it's pride, it's me self-assessing my worthiness and how I fit into the social stratosphere of a religious group of people. Jesus comes in and he says, I've got a completely different idea. How about just be the lowest? How about just be the lowest? And if you are going to be exalted, make sure you are exalted only by someone else and never by yourself. Your job, he says, in my kingdom is to be humiliated. And if you're going to be exalted, it will always come at the hands of another Never at your own hand. And religion doesn't allow for that. Religion can't wait for Jesus to exalt me. Religion can't wait for somebody else to recognize my goodness because religion is a competition. It's a ranking system. The only way for my rank to matter is if your rank is lower and you know it. And Jesus won't have anything to do with it. This is what religious obligation does. It destroys humility. Humility. Because in order for my religion to matter, I have to be better than someone else. In order for my religion to matter, I need to be better at it than the people around me. Why, is it, why, why, do you, why does your religion have to be better? Why does my religion have to be better than Merle's? I mean, you're doing pretty well, Merle. I mean, hang in there. No, I'm kidding. Why? why? Because if I compare myself to God, I don't measure up. And religious people know this. They just don't talk about it out loud. If I compare myself to God, I'm I'm doing lousy because he's holy and I'm kind of lame even as a really, really good religious person. However, if I compare myself to a lame-o, I look pretty good. And so religious people are always comparing themselves to others other than people that they feel are doing better than them. And this is what the religious leaders are doing. Constantly comparing to make sure I'm okay. Okay, I might do this. Sure, I speed a little bit with my car, but I don't overdrink. Sure, I eat too much, but at least I don't watch those shows on Prime Video. And sure, maybe I get a little bit grumpy, but at least I don't swear. And this is what religious people do. It's all about, it's a silly game. And what's great for religious people, there's the rules are always skewed to whatever I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And it's a big comparison, a big game. And that's what the religious leaders are doing. And and lo and behold, this kind of activity will keep you from the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. This kind of religion will, will get in the way of finding Jesus. Because the way of the Lord, the way of Jesus is a way of compassion, a heart that's broken for suffering. And it's the way of humility that is on purpose looking for ways to be the lowest one in the room. That's what Jesus is doing, on purpose, showing up to a room and saying, how do I make sure I'm the lowest one in this room? Verses 12 through 14. 
generosity. Parable of a great banquet. Let me read it if you don't mind. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him. So now he's speaking to his host. Jesus wasn't a polite guest, especially if you were a Pharisee. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you can be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Religion can reduce our loving kindness by taking away our compassion. Religion can reduce our loving kindness by removing our humility and filling us with arrogance. And finally, religion can reduce our loving kindness by destroying our sense of generosity and open-handedness. In religion, since everything is earned, no one should get a freebie. In In a system of religious obligation, since everything is earned... Since I have to earn my righteousness, I have to earn my place, I have to earn my reputation, then no one should get a freebie. So therefore, generosity is out the window. God's not being generous with me, so why should I have to be generous with you? Remember, religious obligations mean God is not giving us stuff out for free. Why are my crops doing so well? Because I'm a good little Jew. Why are my oxen healthy? Because I went to temple three times this year. Why is the rain come? Because I have followed all the, all the rules of my religion. So God hasn't given me anything. Everything I have, my sense of morality, my sense of value, my sense of reputation, my sense of religious uh, establishment, my sense of uh, everything's okay, has all happened for the religious person because of my fidelity to my religious code. So therefore... Don't come at me asking me for free stuff. Every bit I had, I earned with blood, sweat, and tears. Don't, are you going to come and ask me for forgiveness? I earned my forgiveness like everybody should. And this is, so religion destroys generosity because everything is earned. Everything I have was from the, the sweat of my own brow, and so why would I give anything away? And Jesus goes to this Pharisee because it was a, a common cultural understanding, the sense of reciprocity. You would receive someone's gift because you need, to, you need to make sure you write down the, the value of a gift or a value of a meal. And, and the next time you are interacting with them, you've got to make that square. You've got to square that. You've got to hold a banquet and have those same people over. This is what religion does. It, it's no longer somebody holding a banquet because God has just blessed them. And so why not just feed a whole bunch of people? It's I'm going to hold a banquet so that I know I get invited to somebody else's banquet. Now, if you're good at holding banquets, what are you going to do? You're going to have a cheap banquet that feels expensive, hoping that you get invited to someone else's banquet where they actually have expensive stuff. That's what you do. How can I make this benefit me? Religion ruins generosity. There's no need to be religious. Everyone else should be trying to earn their way too. And Jesus here... He says, I've got an idea. Why don't you hold a banquet and invite people who will never, never have the ability to repay you? And what does the religious person say? Well, now you've ruined their incentive to work hard. Well, if they know they're going to get free stuff, well, now they're never going to work. They're just going to keep asking me to come to my banquet. And what would Jesus say to that? Good. Have them over again. 
Are you out? All your food gone? It's Jesus, not me. Don't give me that look. I see what you're doing. Don't give me that look. Just reading the Bible. You didn't want Bible? Go somewhere else. All right, here we go. Religion can get in the way of Jesus. It reduces our loving kindness. Can you believe? I mean, this is, we're serious here. Religion destroys compassion. Religion looks at people who are suffering and assumes that because of bad behavior, they're suffering. Now, it's real easy. Somebody overdrinks the next day, they have a hangover. You say, okay, well, that's your problem. You drink too much. Yeah, but we do it all the time. We did it in the 80s with HIV. We said, oh, God's punishing people with HIV because they have sexual morals different than what the Bible describes. That's religion. That's not compassion. Somebody's dying of HIV, and we're going to tell them they're a sinner. Now, I think we should tell people they're sinners. Guess what? You're sinners. There you go. But to come at people who are sick and tell them they're being punished by God? It doesn't make any sense. There's no compassion there. That's what Jesus is doing. That's exactly what these Pharisees were doing to the guy with dropsy. Something wrong. He's not religious, not obeying the Sabbath. Something's wrong with this guy. So we don't have to feel bad for him swelling because he's being judged by God. And God, who's sitting by the guy, says, you're healed. Gives him relief. Gives him Sabbath. Religion takes away any need for humility. And religion destroys generosity, even though we think, as religious people, we automatically have compassion, humility, and generosity. The fact is, it becomes harder. Jesus is the exact opposite of the Pharisees here. His kingdom and he as king are marked. Think about Jesus. Think about what you know about Jesus. He is compassionate, he is humble, and he is generous. Is he not? Is there any time, he, any time he's not compassionate? Well, just the religious people, right. He's always compassionate. He's always humble. He's always generous. Those, that's how he operates. If this is your king, how ought you to be? If your king is generous, humble, and compassionate, if you're going to call yourself a follower of this king, what does that mean your life should be marked with? Compassion, generosity, and humility. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to these religious leaders, but their religion is getting in the way of it. How can religion get in the way of Jesus? It reduces your loving kindness for others. Okay, next part, verses 15 through 24. How can religion get in the way of Jesus? Religion can actually reduce our desire for God. So on the one hand, religion will reduce how much we care about others. Religious obligation, merit-based religion will also reduce our love for God. Let me show you how. Genesis chapter 3, you're familiar with this passage. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Do we know what tree we're talking about here? Do I got to bring this up to speed? If you don't know what tree we're talking about here, that's fine. Read the first two chapters while I'm talking. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Easy, fellas, here it comes. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her and also ate. Eve was deceived. Adam was just hungry. Let you struggle with that one for a while. 
So here's what we have to understand about this little scene. It's a very brief scene, very typical for ancient Hebrew literature, very few details. The woman saw the tree that was good for food. Did she have food that was good? Yeah, so what's different about this tree? I don't have to get, I don't have to get it from God. This tree is different. All the other trees is food God gave me. What do I get from this tree? I get food when, and I get to cut God out of the equation. I, so this is food I can have and the, the God marching around the garden at, in the cool of the day, I don't have to mess with him anymore. This seems like a good deal. I no longer have to take food out of God's hands. I can take it straight from this tree. Because nothing's more annoying than having to depend on God for everything, which is precisely what Sabbath is for. And so Eve there says, you know what? I like this idea. I can get food on my own. I have to trust God. What else does it do? It desired to make one wise. So now I don't have to talk to God. I don't need God for my food. I don't need God to be wise. So here's what sin does. Sin gives us what we want without giving us God. So if we can have everything we want without God, there is no longer a desire to have fellowship with God. Here's the thing. Sin does that, and we all agree. Religion does the exact same thing. Religion says, I can have all this stuff I think God ought to be giving me, and I don't have to trust him to give it to me. I can earn what God is not granting. I am a sinner. I need righteousness, so therefore I will make myself righteous. I will make myself impressive. I will make myself a good reputation. I won't wait for God to grant those things. I will gain them on my own. Religious people understand if you can make it without God, then you're doing well, although you claim to be doing it in the name of God. Here's the other thing we need to understand about having things without them coming from God is pretty soon the things God is offering will no longer seem that, that good. When you take the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, now all the other trees don't look so great. And religion does the same thing. It says, I can be impressive. I can be righteous. I can have a good reputation. Well, Jesus gives those for free. Well, now that seems kind of lame. Let's look at the parable he says, tells over in verse 15 of Luke 14. One of those reclined at the table heard these things, and he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has made this point about loving kindness and compassion and humility. And and all of a sudden, one of these religious people bursts out. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. How else else could you say this? Wouldn't it be great when we get to heaven? I mean, how do you argue with that, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to argue. Well, I guess you got that point. Heaven sounds nice. It will be great to eat at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, though, takes a little further, and he says, let's think about who's going to be at that banquet. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. 
The servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that, they may, uh, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Pharisee says, Wouldn't it be great to eat the banquet of the kingdom of God? Yeah, you're not coming. So the way these banquets would work, an invitation would be issued that said, I'm going to put together a great banquet. A first invitation would go out to all the people being invited. Then when it was the time of the banquet, the invitation would go out. Remember the banquet you were invited to and you RSVP'd and said, yes, so I killed the right amount of, of, of sheep in order to feed you? It's time now. Come on over tonight. It's going to be great. And then what happened was when that invitation went out telling everybody, it's, it's tonight, come on over, everybody was busy. So one person had bought a field, and he wanted to go look at his field. Now, what it meant is he had made a purchase, and he wanted to examine it. But he had already made the purchase. So here's the question. What's going to be about that different about that field tomorrow? The grass is going to be slightly longer. So he wanted to go out to that field because he was excited about this purchase he had made. Likely, if you're buying a field, it means now you are going to be able to increase your harvest which means you are going to either have greater food security or you're going to have enough that you'll be able to sell it and buy oxen or a Tesla. I don't know what they were buying back then. But now he has increased in income by investing in this field. And he wants to go look at this field and say, man, this is a nice looking field. We've all done this. You do it when you buy a car. You go out and look at it, which is funny. Cars aren't for looking. You drive them, if I understand correctly, but still, oh, this is a nice looking car. Okay, good. So that's what he did. He wants to examine his asset and, and bask in the joy of having purchased something that is bringing him delight and maybe a little bit of additional income, and he wants to do that. He wants to feel that feeling. We all know what that's like. Somebody else uh, also made another excuse. He says, look, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go examine them. Five yoke of oxen. That's ten oxen. That's a whole bunch of oxen. I don't even own one ox, much, yet, much less a set of oxen. I don't, even, I don't even know where you'd put it. This guy had huge fields. That's what was clear. This guy is a wealthy individual if he needs five sets of oxen. And he wanted to go make sure his purchase was properly executed. But this is a person of, of, of high net worth. And, and the idea of going to this little banquet and examining an extraordinarily expensive purchase that's going to allow me to have even greater income over my massive uh, land holdings. Banquet sounds nice, but you know what? I got bigger fish to fry. I'm kind of a big deal. Ten oxen. That's kind of a big deal. Another one says he just got married. (laughs) Take your wife, right? Say you got a plus one. I don't know. Now, this, is, this could be kind of excusable in, in one sense. In the Old Testament, if, uh, if the king called you to battle, uh, there was a number of reasons you could get out of going to battle. If you just built a house, you could, you could stay home. I just built a house. I want to live in it at least a year before I'm killed in battle. Okay, that's good. The other thing is, if you were just married, you were allowed to skip battle if you had just been married. So you could enjoy... Uh, relationship with your wife and not get married and then immediately be sent off uh, to war. And so those were excuses. So the, that's kind of what this person is getting at. Is that, well, the banquet's nice, but I'm just married. Right now, it's, it's me and the missus, all right? It's, kinda, it's just me and her right now. We're not, we're not doing social stuff right now. 
And, and, and what it is is this, this master had prepared this great banquet, and he's trying to tell this Pharisee, listen, when it's time for the banquet to happen, the way your religion is operating, when it finally comes time and the Lord shows up and say, it's time for the banquet, all you guys are going to have more important things to do. That's what religion does. You are going to be so in love with the world you have created, your reputation, your righteousness, your riches, your a world that you rule, that when the king shows up and says it's time to eat in this banquet, you're going to say, I have more important things to do. So this Pharisee was trying to sound religious. Oh, it'll be great to eat in the banquet of heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm looking at your life. When the kingdom of heaven shows up, you won't be interested. Your life is more important than the kingdom of heaven. When we have all of these things, religion can reduce our love for God. God is no longer, no longer desirable in light of these other things. Just like Eve, when she took that fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, now she no longer wanted God. How do we know that? How do we know she no longer wanted God? Because he came to the garden. What'd they do? They hid. Who hides from God? Sinners hide from God. And that's exactly what's going to happen to this religious Pharisee when the kingdom of God comes. He won't want God. He wants God's stuff. Religion can get in the way of Jesus because religion reduces our desire for God. Let me say it this way. God desires relationship with us more than we desire relationship with him. Look who he ends up calling. Master got mad. Go out and in, into the city and get the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. These individuals would not normally be invited to a banquet like this, especially if religious people are going to be there. Because people who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame, according to religious understanding, must be under the judgment of God. That's why they're poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Remember the one guy, uh, you know, the Pharisees asked, the, the guy who's blind, who sinned, him or his parents? Somebody sinned. Guy's blind. And so now what God is doing he's, is he's inviting people that would look forward to eating in the banquet of God. They are people who want relationship with God. The poor, and this would likely be the reference here because he's talking about religious Jews. In this case, these are Jews who have been rejected by their culture because they're poor, crippled, blind, and lame. If you had leprosy, where'd you live? Not in my backyard. Somewhere else. I don't care where you live, but don't live here. And Jesus says, oh, you can come to my dinner. Now, let me just really encourage your faith here for a moment. There was still room. And so the master said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel uh, people to come in. So where, who's he going to now? Gentiles. That's us. Yeah, there you go. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, they got invited first. And luckily, there were still seats. And so you and I as Gentiles get invited in. So if you want to know where you rank... There it is. You may as well just take the humility because the Bible says you ought to. But, but he says, none of those who were invited, and he's referencing the people of Israel, those who had been given the covenant promises of God, because they rejected God and instead wanted religion, God says, you're not going to eat of my banquet. Verse 24, I tell you, none will of those who were invited will taste my banquet. Judgment is certain for those who reject Jesus even those who reject Jesus in order to pursue religion. Judgment is certain for those who reject Jesus 
even for those who reject Jesus, in order to pursue religion. Religion can get in the way of Jesus. It will reduce our loving kindness, and it will reduce our desire for God. I don't want to overstate it, but that's always true. To have a relationship with God is to be loved by God. To have a relationship with God by necessity is to experience the love of God. Because because God loves us in this way. I think it's in, in Romans. God shows his love toward us in that while we were religious, no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in order to have a relationship with God through Jesus, by definition means to experience undeserved love of God, to have God to bestow affection on you when you are rebelling against him. The assumption is, if we have experienced this kind of love of God, that we recognize he loves me even though I'm a sinner, the assumption is that will have an impact on people around me. That's the assumption. If I am loved by God as a sinner, how then will that love in me relate to sinners around me? If I have received God's love as a sinner, how will I relate with sinners? In a loving way. That's the assumption that Jesus is getting at here. To relate with sinners in a religious way makes no sense. If I have received love from God, then that love will work its way out into my relationships around me. If I need people around me to measure up in order to receive my love, I will assume to some degree I am trying to measure up to get God to love me because they're always going to be connected. So I might say it this way. Are you having trouble loving others? And the answer is yes. It's hard to love everybody. Then that will indicate I'm, there's something going wrong with my understanding and experiencing how God loves me. And generally, if I feel like I have to earn God's love, I will want the people around me to earn my love in general. So that's one of the ways you can diagnose. Have I really experienced, have I really, do I know what it's like to experience God's love? One of the places I can look is, well, how do I relate to sinners around me? How do I relate to the people around me? If I am trying to get people to earn my love through good behavior, through meeting my standards, through keeping their nose clean and toeing the line, then that, I can assume that that's how I'm relating to God. And, and, and that, that's how that always flows. Do I have hate? Do I have anger? Do I have spite for the people around me? Do I look at people around me that I disagree with? This is becoming really, really important in the culture we live in. That's becoming so divisive. Do I look at the people who are different than me in terms of how they think about the world, and do I see them as enemies? Well, then what is it about my relationship with God where I think we're enemies? Because God reaches out in love to enemies, sinners. So if as an enemy of God, he reached down to me in love, why can I not express love and affection to the enemies around me? And that's, that's the way it ought to flow. It's something I want to look at my own heart. And you should look at your own heart. If I'm watching the news and I'm thinking about the culture around us, and I'm filled with anger and bitterness and spite and hatred for people who are different than me, something's wrong with my relationship with God. Now, what you're trying to tell yourself is something's wrong with the world. No, no, no. Something's been wrong with the world for a long time. Something's wrong with your relationship with God. If you think the world needs to earn your favor, it means you're trying to earn God's favor. 
Okay, another question for you. Do you mind? I'll take that as a no. Religion. Do you pray before meals? You don't have to answer out loud. You probably do. It's church. It looks like a church crowd. I got no problem with praying before meals. We pray before meals. Not really a verse that says you should pray for more meals. Have you noticed that? I mean, we are Baptists. Kind of, you know, Bible, sole authority for faith and practice. If you're going to say I got to do something, you better have a verse. First Timothy 4, I know. There's nothing wrong to eat as long as it's received with thanksgiving. It's not telling you you have to pray before you eat. It's saying you can have bacon and be thankful. <laughs> Read the whole path. It's called context. Same thing over in 1 Corinthians. It's saying be thankful that we don't have to follow the Jewish law code if we choose not to. If you want to follow the Jewish law code, knock yourself out. But the Bible is saying, no, if you're a Gentile or a Jew and you want to eat and you receive on Thanksgiving, good. Is it saying you got to pray before every meal? No. Do you want to pray before every meal? Knock yourself out. Pray before every meal. Here's the question. Is God more happy with you because you pray before the meal? No. So we have a little ceremony in our life. We said we bow our head and we thank God for the meal. Is God impressed with our ceremony? No, I don't even know how to impress God by thanking God for the meal. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. And then, I mean, here's the other thing. I was taught when you were praying, you're supposed to start with adoration, then you go to confession, then you go to thanksgiving, and then you go to supplication. When you're saying thanksgiving for meal, do you have to start with praise? Lord, we thank you for broccoli. Well, here's the reality. I'm not thankful for broccoli. I'm thankful I have food. Here's, Here's what I'm getting at. It's a hard thing. You can pray before a meal all day long, all night long, before every meal. You can pray in different languages. You can pray in tongues. You can pray standing. You can pray sitting. You can pray and then give half your meal to the poor. If you're not actually grateful, you're wasting your time. You're doing what we call religion. Good Christians pray before they eat. That's not what Jesus said. What is Jesus saying? People who love God are thankful. And you don't, have to, you don't have to say words to be thankful. There are some meals I sit down to, I don't need to pray to be thankful. It's the kind of meal I'm thankful for. And there are other meals I'm going to pray that God will make me thankful before I'm done praying. <laughs> Lord, make me thankful because I'm not. This is the difference between religion and the heart. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Your religion will keep you from God. Here's the other thing you got to pray. Why are we not grateful when we're eating a meal? Because I bought it. Because I bought it. I cooked it. I bought the house we're eating in. I bought the table the food's sitting on. Grateful, if anybody should be praying a prayer of thanks, the kids should be thanking dad. That's what should be happening. It's impossible to be thankful to God for something you earned. Impossible. You cannot be grateful to God. So it's a complete shift in our attitude when we look at the stuff of our life. I look at the food. It doesn't matter whose card got run run at Costco. The question is who provided it? And the answer biblically is always the Lord. Is it possibly be grateful for something that you bought on your own? And that's where religion ruins our gratefulness and our love for God because we earned it all. If you earned it all, you have no need to be thankful for God. 
If you earned your reputation, you earned your righteousness, you earned your standing, you earned all your stuff, then God is just there to kind of make you feel spiritual. It'll ruin your love for God. Finally, this, and, and why don't we, uh, we're going to take uh, communion uh, as a way of applying the reality of what Jesus is teaching here. So why don't you open up your, the bread and then uh, open up the juice of your communion. Now, they uh, did some archaeological work over in Israel, and they discovered these were the exact chalices the disciples used the Last Supper. I'm kidding. Some of you are, really? No, I'm kidding. What I want us to do as we start thinking about uh, partaking of communion and the Last Supper together is this, is really to think about how we relate to others, compassion and humility. Because communion is, is one of those places where we really get to slow down, take some time and say, did Jesus have compassion for us? Yeah, because his blood was shed. His blood was shed for sinners. And did, did Jesus have humility yeah, because his body was completely destroyed. Flogged, beaten, nailed to a cross, pierced, dehydrated. When we think about compassion and humility as the opposite of religious, it starts with gratefulness that comes from knowing what our Jesus did for us. If we have Jesus, we have what we need to have compassion for others. Because when you can look at his shed blood and say, he had this much compassion for me, I think I can have compassion for those around me. And I have a Savior who is this humiliated. So I can, I can start getting rid of the need to be impressive. And when I walk into a room, the question is, how fast can I get low? And how fast can I serve? What I want us to do is take just a few minutes in prayer before I read from Scripture and we partake of, of communion together, I want you to think maybe of one or two people in your life where compassion and humility is tough, where compassion and humility is a real challenge. And this is an opportunity just to come before the Lord in confession and prayer and say, Lord, I want to have for them the kind of compassion and humility that you have for me. Show me how that compassion and humility can fill my heart and overflow in my relationship with them. So why don't you think of one, maybe two people, and in just a few minutes, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer of thanks. I'll read from the scripture, and then we'll partake of the elements together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your compassion that you've had for us as sinners, rebels, those who have rejected you, that even in our sin and rebellion, you sent your son, Jesus, 
God in the flesh, to live a perfect life and die on the cross in our place. We thank you, God, that you sent your Holy Spirit to reveal to our eyes and hearts how much we need a Savior. We thank you, God, that you have given us all that we need for a life of godliness in you. God, we freely confess that in spite of your enormous gift of compassion and humility and generosity, oftentimes, Lord, our hands are closed in a fist, holding tightly to our things. God, would you open our eyes to the immensity of what Jesus has done for us so that loving kindness and compassion and humility and generosity will flow out to others. And God, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that our hearts would be filled with love for you, that we would no longer hide in the garden, but we would come running out to meet you. We thank you for this bread which reminds us of Jesus' broken body that he took upon himself, the punishment that our sin deserved. And we thank you for this cup which reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed that we might have forgiveness of sins. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's eat and drink together.